Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Listen, if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so anytime your little heart desires. All you have to do is uh, dial me up at 801-331-8113. It's really, really simple. And uh, sometimes it actually feels good. I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, call up and yell at me. That might feel good, too. But, you know, just uh, if you if you got something to say, go ahead and get it off your chest. We'll all be better for it. Would you find it strange to know that a lot of Americans say they are highly critical of the state of public discourse? I don't know if I'm if I would say, well, you know, I'm I'm not very happy about it either. But I, I will say that it does appear that uh, the polarization has made it a little tougher to have a point of view and and to safely share that point of view. In fact, there's a poll here in this article. This is on uh, intellectualtakeout.org. Most people in this poll say that political debate has become less respectful, fact-based, and focused on the issues in recent years. Overall, 85% said uh, it's more negative. 12% 12% said, nah, it's about the same. 3% said, no, actually, it's become more positive. Okay, whatever whatever that 3% is taking. I'd like a handful of those, too, please. As far as uh, whether this debate is respectful, 85% say that we've become less respectful toward each other. 76% say that we're less fact-based than we once were. 60% say that we are less focused on issues than we were before. And 46% say that we are less entertaining. This is a survey of U.S. adults conducted April 29th through May 23rd of this year by the Pew Research Center. And they're saying the tone and nature of political debate in this country has become more negative, less negative in terms of respectful, fact-based, focused on issues and entertaining. Now, I, I have a thought to offer here as far as issues. And this goes back to something that was explained to me quite a few years ago, but it made a lot of sense. So I'm going to do my best to remember and explain and share it with you. And hopefully it makes sense to you. But the idea is that a society often goes through kind of a cycle in its development. In other words, there it doesn't just stay static. All right, everybody, we're here. We're free. <laughs> Thus, it's going to be forever and ever. In fact, you'll often hear this referred to as the Titler Cycle, named after a Scottish historian who would have been a contemporary of the Founding Fathers in about 1776 or thereabouts. But uh, Alexander Titler apparently identified, or allegedly, so there's some doubt as to whether it was him or if it was somebody else who first did this, but it's typically attributed to Titler. This cycle which shows how a nation goes from bondage to great spiritual faith, that great spiritual faith delivers them to liberty. And from liberty, they have abundance, and from abundance, they start to become selfish, and then they become apathetic, and then they become dependent, and then they find themselves back in bondage. I may have left a step or two out, but if you envision that that as a circle— You'll find that uh, the the beauty of this cycle is you can cover actually several different areas at once. 
For instance, we have a measure of liberty here in America today. There's no doubt about it. We have some. What remains of it seems to be getting smaller, but there is definitely some liberty that you will find here. You will not find other places. At the same time, you'll find abundance. You'll also find selfishness. You'll find apathy. You'll find dependence. And you'll even find degrees of bondage. Well, it sounds like we're all over the place. It kind of (laughs) does. But the point is, we typically go through that cycle. And once we find ourselves in bondage, once our situation becomes intolerable, the thing that typically moves the people out of that position is it starts with great spiritual faith. But the interesting thing about the Titler cycle is that bondage is almost always on the increase. Once you get past the abundance phase, once you get into the selfishness and the apathy phase, that's when the bad stuff starts to happen. And on that side of the cycle, there's a very noticeable difference in what people focus on than they do when they're in the great spiritual faith side, the freedom side, the abundance side. Here's the difference. When people are experiencing great spiritual faith, when they are experiencing liberty, when they are experiencing abundance, typically they are doing so because they are focused on what's called forms. And by forms, I just mean the the foundational principles, the foundational structure that, that guides their society. If you've ever worked with concrete, you understand that if you want to make something out of concrete, you can't just pour a big old, you know, cement truck full of concrete and then after the fact shape it into what i want i need a front step what you have to do beforehand is you have to build the forms that will give definition to what this is going to be and those forms define the shape of what that concrete is going to become they are the fundamental principles if you will that hold it in place that keep it from just flowing and going everywhere and becoming just a big old lump of rock on the other side though of that cycle from the forms are issues. And when people are more consumed with issues than they are with forms, maybe another way to put this is when we're, when we're more concerned about uh, fads than we are with the principles that are at stake, or we're more concerned with personalities than we are with the principles at stake, that's what seems to get us into trouble. So if you're interested in moving more quickly through the bad parts of the Titler cycle, you got to shift your focus a little bit. You need to put that focus more on what are the principles that need to be addressed, that need to be upheld. And by the way, forms don't just happen in politics. Marriage is a form. Now, I know this could raise some iron. Well, now, are you talking marriage for everybody? Are you just talking traditional marriage? Well, Let's look at it this way. Is there a pattern that has emerged over the millennia of humankind that can be found in societies that are both technologically advanced as well as primitive, religious and irreligious, in which a man and a woman come together in a permanent relationship and raise the offspring that they create in that relationship? I think you're going to find the answer is, yeah, the the pattern has been pretty consistent. Yeah, there's been an aberration here or there. Some societies get a little bit sidetracked, you know, in mere pleasure seeking. 
and and they they start going after things other than that. But when when societies have practiced this particular form or this societal form, it doesn't have to be a political one. That's when they find stability. That's when they tend to prosper. It's only one example, but uh, there there are others. Family is is another one. You know, it's it's part and parcel of this. I was actually having a really great conversation last night with a friend about uh, about reparations. And, and he was talking about, uh, you know, how, the, how the, the black community in America has suffered as a result of slavery. And look, I have no doubt that at the time of slavery, it was pretty tough to be a black person. Even though there were blacks who owned slaves, it was it was a tough time. And once once slavery was ended as an institution, it still was difficult. And he pointed out that maybe this is a cause for so much of the economic disparity or the the uh, disadvantages that are sometimes found within the black community. And here's where I had to differ. Just from the standpoint of um, slavery was a long time ago. If it was still going on, I'd be like, well, maybe it is. Maybe that's what's contributing. But I think it's something more important. It's the breakdown of the family. Look, you go back 50 years. And the illegitimacy rate at that time, and I'm talking probably early to mid-1960s, would have been somewhere around 30% illegitimate birth rate in the black community. I don't remember what it was in in all the other ethnicities, but um, that seemed unusually high. But what it also means is, look, there's roughly 70% of black families had an intact family. There was a father present in the home. Now the illegitimacy rate in some cities among, you know, black women is upwards of 60-70%. I think you're most likely to see this in the inner city. This is where you're going to find the welfare projects. You're going to find people utterly dependent on the government. It's where you will find kids running the streets, selling drugs, doing whatever they can to find some identity within a gang or whatever. That's not a cause of slavery or that's not a result of slavery. That is the result of the family not being intact. I don't think it's too much to to suggest that the breakdown of the family has succeeded in destroying the family, at least in the black community, more so than slavery did. I think this should be an easier one to fix, but unfortunately, it's less of a political solution and more of a cultural solution. And by the way, illegitimacy is spreading, you know, and the rate is going up across a lot of other demographics as well. We'll come back to this right after the break. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number. So I'm sharing with you an article here from intellectualtakeout.org. Americans are highly critical, according to a recent poll by the Pew Research Center, about how political discourse is going. And, and I'm going to follow this up with, uh, with a wonderful lesson on how to debate involving, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? It's a great exercise. We'll get to it in just a few minutes. This is an article, I believe this is uh, Annie Holmquist. Yes, Annie Holmquist wrote this about how Americans are highly critical of the state of public discourse. And she says, why do we have to endure such negative debate? 
Now, you know, a lot of people would say, well, it's a fault of the guy in the White House or on the flip side, those who control the House or Senate chambers. Others might say it's uh, negative uh, political discourse is the fault of college administrators, mainstream media or the ever present influence of Twitter or Facebook. But there's another explanation that we overlook. And Annie Holmquist asks, could the negative political debate devoid of facts and substantive issues be the result of the free society in which we live? That's part of the argument advanced by Richard Weaver in a few essays on propaganda. Now, keep in mind, he wrote these several decades ago. But Weaver explains that propaganda, that factless fluff that so many Americans resent, is to be expected in a free and pluralistic society. Because a pluralistic society is one which must countenance propaganda from many sources. And because of this, Weaver notes that we, as Americans, must be ready to properly handle the propaganda. And she says, and Annie Holmquist says, therein lies the problem. For coping with propaganda requires widespread critical intelligence, which is largely the product of education. Now, I'm going to emphasize, she says, education, not schooling. Weaver goes on to ask the critical question. Does our educational system prepare people to deal with the vast amount of opinion, argumentation, and special pleading addressed to them today through all the channels provided by modern technology? In a word, nope. Weaver explains why this is. He says, I'm inclined to think that it does not prepare them because we have largely ceased to teach rhetoric. If democracy means anything, it means that every person is an active advocate of policies, He must listen to many arguments, and he must make arguments in refutation. He cannot do either of these well. He cannot make his honestly held views acceptable to others, and he cannot disarm an opponent in an argument unless he has some understanding of the probative value of statements. In other words, Americans have the responsibility to be actively engaged in learning the facts of their political system. They have a responsibility to research and learn the facts of issues on their own. But they also have the responsibility to defend and advance the viewpoints they decide to hold. So why aren't many Americans doing this? Well, here's Weaver's answer. He says it's tempting to say that the only final protection against propaganda is education. But the remark must be severely qualified because there is a kind of education which makes people more rather than less gullible. Most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions. On these, the propagandist can play even more readily than on the supposed prejudices of the uneducated. It is the independent, reflective intelligence which critically rejects and accepts the ideas competing in the marketplace. Education to think, rather than mere literacy, should be the prime object of those seeking to combat propaganda. Annie Holmquist says, Education to think. Is this the type of education happening in our schools, or... Do we serve up the type of education that makes individuals more gullible? Judging from the Pew poll, she says Americans clearly recognize there is something wrong with political discourse. They don't want to be fed lines of angry propaganda. But they do want facts with which to form their own opinions. Are we giving the next generation the education they need to figure out these facts for themselves? And once we do this, is it possible our political discourse will become more civil? Okay, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I don't play one on the radio, but let me, let me take a crack at this. It's been my observation, and this is after roughly 25 years of sitting behind a microphone and 
a good portion of that time arguing or discussing and debating issues and ideas with people. The people who become most dogmatic, who get the angriest, who get the most aggressive when they meet an opposing point of view, are typically the people who are the least settled in what they believe. Does that make sense? It's not a matter of, uh, you know, that uh, they, they have to know the answer to every single thing, but people who have serious doubts are the ones who really start to get defensive, and that's usually what leans to shouting, or sometimes they puff up and do the, you know, guerrilla-type intimidation act. By contrast, the people I encounter who have a certainty about what they know, and this doesn't mean that they have all the answers, okay? They're, they're open to new truth, but at some point... They have sussed things out enough that they have committed to the truth on certain things. They don't have anything to prove at that point. And so they're less likely to get into chest beating or purse swinging or any of the other things that you see happening so much on social media. Just a thought. So would you like to learn to argue a little more productively? Terrific article here from David Lewandowski. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Now, that seems like a pretty trivial thing to debate, but he has three things here that a trivial debate can teach you about constructive dialogue. And it goes back to when he was walking back from a logic course in college. A friend asked him, have you heard of the is a hot dog a sandwich debate raging on Reddit? To which Mr. Ludonowski said, no, I, I haven't. What a silly thing for people to waste their time on. But eventually curiosity got the best of him. He checked out the debate and soon discovered that a petty fight exploded with the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. That's a thing, apparently. Declared that it was wrong to classify a hot dog as a sandwich. But he says, as I scoured through the hundreds of comments instead of doing my logic homework, I realized something else. Most people have no idea how to incorporate logic into everyday argumentation. So he has three things that many people tend to miss. I think you'll find these really helpful. I know I did. The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council's press release states, limiting the hot dog significance by saying it's just a sandwich. Category is like calling the Dalai Lama just a guy. The statement, this statement showcases the need to have debates centered around a question. Without one, it's easy to divert into reasonings that have nothing to do with the essence of the argument. So in this case, the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council is asserting that a hot dog is not a sandwich. But their provided evidence doesn't support their assertion. Instead, it just draws attention away from the central question. This is commonly known as a red herring. You're going to get to see a lot of these when the next presidential debate airs. Number two, use facts to support premises. A second common mistake in argumentation is to appeal to subjective experience. And this happens in social media debates where someone will open their argument with the line, personally, I feel. Such an opening suggests that their feelings are unique experiences and thus one cannot argue against them. So to avoid this, you have to appeal to objectivity when debating any point. Take it, for example, this comment. A hot dog is not a sandwich. A burger is not a sandwich. A quesadilla is not a sandwich. Only a sandwich is a sandwich. Now, the most important thing to note here is there is no definition of what a sandwich is. In other words, the argument begs the question by assuming the conclusion as its main premise. 
Now, we have name for very, names for various food items like burgers and hot dogs, but that doesn't mean they're not also broadly categorized as sandwiches as well. Without a definition of what a sandwich is, there's no way to assess and see if each of these foods meet the criteria of a sandwich. From a dictionary standpoint, one comment says, yes, the definition of a sandwich is two or more slices of bread or a split roll having a filling in between. But they say, that being said, I personally don't feel it counts as a sandwich because nobody uses sandwich to mean a split bun in common speech. So there's an appeal to authority, specifically Merriam-Webster, to admit that, yes, a hot dog is definitionally a sandwich. But then the Redditor proceeds to state that it doesn't really matter because, once again, it's all about how we use it in day-to-day speech. That's a common problem today. Instead of applying objective definitions and standard story reasoning, we go with subjective experiences, and we end up with faulty reasoning. We'll come back and finish this up just the other side of these messages. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. You are listening to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. If you haven't downloaded the free app to your smartphone, Android or iPhone, I would suggest you do so. Yes, we stream our programming 24-7, but we also have a marvelous podcast archive where you can go back and hit the highlights for the stuff that uh, you couldn't catch, you know, because your schedule was crowded or you had other things going on. A lot of great shows to choose from, a great message. Most importantly... This is a platform where, you know, not just uh, people like me, but uh, but where wonderful guests and callers have a chance to, to speak about personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights, free markets. All right. Let's talk more about hot dogs and learning how to argue correctly. I, I really love this article from intellectualtakeout.org by David Lewandowski. Is a hot dog a sandwich? He gives some great ideas. How to avoid red herrings, how to support your premises with facts. Let's get to the last one here. He says that's counter by refuting supporting claims. He says there are a couple of ways you can show that an argument is unsound. But the most common is to establish that one of the premises is false. And he gives the following comment from the Reddit thread about is a hot dog a sandwich? So... He uses the dictionary definition that an earlier commenter had used. The definition of a sandwich from the dictionary is two or more slices of bread or a split roll having a filling in between. That being said, I don't I still personally don't feel it counts as a sandwich because nobody uses sandwich to mean a split bun in common speech. And somebody used the comment, well, nobody uses sandwich to mean split bun in common speech. And another responder said, well, how about that? That's a pretty good counter-argument. I'm not sure what to think now. So the, the commenter takes his fellow debater's premise, nobody uses sandwich to mean a split bun in common speech, and provides a counter-example, a sub-sandwich. By providing an example that's used by a clear majority of people, the response effectively shows that the universal claim nobody uses is wrong. Now, judging from today's culture, many of us have forgotten these basic forms of argument. Would a return to these foundational principles aid us in, all, in uh, proper and civil discourse, allowing us to make headway in matters that affect our lives? 
Yeah, I think they probably would. If you want to really challenge yourself, grab a, grab a copy of Logic for Dummies. It's amazing stuff, and it gets deep fast. Once we got through some of the basic logic and got into Boolean logic, I was like, okay, all right, uncle, my brain is about to burst. The beauty of using logic correctly is not that, you know, you're, you're studying to take the LSAT or something like that. It'll help you there, too. But when you use logic in your arguments, what you learn to do is to argue in such a way. It's, it's not that you're going to be right every time. Okay, knowing how to use logic doesn't mean, oh, yeah, my, my arguments will be absolutely airtight. But what it does mean when you learn how to logically construct an argument and not leave something wide open, you won't be wrong as often. I don't know if that makes sense. You're not going to be right every time, but you won't be wrong very often either. And you learn how to to narrow it down and get it down to what is really at stake, what's really being argued. You can cut through the smokescreen and sometimes the emotional fog that people will throw up. And, And sometimes, you know, they'll throw something at you to put you on the defensive. Well, that sounds like something Adolf Hitler would have said. Oh, so you know what? You just been you've been equated to Adolf Hitler because of something you said. So do you play the hey, I'm not a Nazi, you know, game or do you just say back to the argument (laughs) and stick with whatever it is you're trying to to get across? Look, it can be a lot of fun. It, It can be informative. Learning to argue and defend a point of view is a great way to learn whether or not your point of view will hold up. I had a friend stop me some years ago and ask me, and and he was being very sincere when he asked this. He said, you speak with a lot of certainty on a lot of the stuff you talk about. And he goes, I just, I just want to know how do you have this certainty? How do you know that you're not wrong? And, And my first answer was, I don't know that I'm not wrong. Because I don't have all the answers and I, and I won't pretend that, oh yeah, you know, I got this all figured out. I don't. But there are certain subjects and there are certain things that, uh, you know, have come up time and again. And in in the case when I talked to him, I mean, I'd I'd been on the air for at least 20 years at that point. And I said, you know, there are some things I have had to either argue or explain or defend five days out of the week. And that doesn't mean that therefore I know what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is it gave me plenty of opportunity to examine my premises. And you know what? Some of my premises were wrong. There were some things I had to adjust, and, and I'm sure there are still things that I'm going to have to adjust upon encountering new truths. I think the key is to have a productive discussion, and that's the thing that I see lacking, particularly on social media. Look, I, I am in awe at, at some of the snark and some of the just barbs that people can throw out there, um, you know, when it when it comes to things like Twitter, I still think that the best thing, the best jab that I have seen in a long time was a, a journalist who was complaining about, you know, it's only five bucks for a subscription to the newspaper. But, you know, people would rather spend their money on a beer. You know, he goes, you know, why don't people appreciate what journalism is doing for them? And somebody tweeted back. Because my beer doesn't always constantly remind me about how important it is. <laughs> That's kind of harsh, but it also made the point. So I, I can respect those who wield their snark like a, a finely balanced rapier. But if you're really about trying to become better informed yourself, 
or maybe even trying to persuade people to your point of view. I still think the single most useful lesson that I have learned in the last few years has been you've got to be willing to lose the need to win. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't speak up and make your point. It just means you have to adopt the uh, the thick skin and and the, the love for your fellow man that says, I don't need to win. I don't need to dominate. I'll engage and I'll, I'll have a good rollicking discussion with you, but I'm not going to try to beat you into submission. You don't have to admit, all right, you know, that's it. And when you use this approach, I guarantee you're going to run into people who will strongly disagree with you. And some people may, you know, get really aggressive. We know people who are like that, right? They're okay until you disagree, and then, boy, they puff up, and it's just, you know, total domination. It's really fun online when, you know, there's <laughs> it just it, there's, there's no personal investment. Nobody's feeling like, well, you know, I'll take a punch in the nose if I talk like this to you in person. So they, they just throw caution to the wind. But if you can humble yourself enough to speak your truth, let me say that another way, because that sometimes throws people the wrong way. Speak the truth as you understand it with love. Take the hits, keep smiling, and, and if they just want to fight, I mean, some people just do. Some people, you know, there's, there's pain in their lives, and, and this is a convenient outlet, and oh, look, you're standing in front of me, and you're disagreeing with me, and they're just ready to unwind. Just walk away from it. There is no law that says, well, you know, once you've made a comment on a thread, you are duty-bound to keep going. And, and for this reason, I find myself starting to type out a response to somebody's post on Facebook, and more often than not... I get the comment written, and, and I'm kind of a wordsmith. I love to come up with you know what I hope is a good, memorable, concise way of saying something in a way that makes it very hard to argue against it. And sometimes I have just a little hint of snark that wants to creep in there. And so I like to go over it real quick and, and see, am I, am I being snarky? And if I find a molecule of snark in there, more often than not, I will delete what I was going to comment because I know I'm not going to be adding to the discussion. I'm just going to, it's, it's reaching out and boing, you know, flipping the end of their nose. It might feel good and I might feel clever for doing it, but it's not going to accomplish anything good. When I, when I say accomplishing something good, I'm talking about helping somebody see that there is another way to look at this, whether they agree or not. You can at least acknowledge that uh, I'm seeing it from this vantage point. We're clearly standing in different places, but these two points of view can exist without one of us having to win over the other. And by the way, the words that I have found that, that make it very easy to, to acknowledge that, uh, yeah, we have differing viewpoints. You'll often hear people say, well, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to throw it all out the window right now. Try saying this. I hear what you're saying or restate to them. This is what I understand you to be saying and and say back to them accurately. This is what what you hear from them. And at the same time, then present your point of view. You can see what that does, right? It's not tearing them down. It's not making them. You're so wrong. It's just pointing out at the same time. Here's where I'm coming from. And the goal here is. By the end of the discussion, both of you should be slightly wiser for the exchange, even if your mind hasn't been changed one whit. I know it sounds idealistic, but I'm telling you, I put this to practice. I've seen it work. 
and I'm happier for using this approach. So, you know, take it for what it's worth. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. That's a very helpful number if you're listening to the live broadcast. If by chance you are catching the podcast, sorry, you're out of luck. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's always worth getting up early in the morning, right? Depending on where you are, it could be really early. That's for the benefit of my son, who may or may not be streaming this show as he's uh, getting up to go work on the fishing docks in Ketchikan, Alaska. That lucky son of a gun. All right. I, look, I, I, I get competitive. I think America and Russia once were so competitive in the space race that that was the basis for, well, a lot of the really cool advancements that we saw. I mean, come on. First to the moon. Yeah. We're going to celebrate that 50th anniversary coming up about a month from now, if I'm not mistaken. Can you believe that? 50 years since Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon. Well, the, the space race is apparently back Saw this on the Drudge Report this morning. I'm trying to get my head around this, and I, I don't know. It's On the one hand, there's a little surge of national pride. Yeah, we should be the first, but it's the baby space race. Apparently, a Moscow scientist vows to ensure the first child born in space will be Russian. But she does admit that she is struggling to find volunteers for the project. I don't know, man. Um... I've never been pregnant, but I've watched my wife go through a number of pregnancies, and I'm wondering if in zero gravity that would actually be kind of a good thing. Well, bottom line is Moscow is aiming for the first baby born in space to be a Russian. And Dr. Irina Ogneva, lab head of cell biophysics at the Institute of Medical and Biological Problems of Russian Academy of Sciences, revealed the ambition this week. She said, we have always been first in space and would want the first human to be born in space to be a citizen of Russia. But she admitted that so far, Russian cosmonauts have refused to donate sperm obtained in space for scientific study. Hmm. And she didn't make clear whether she expects, expects rather the first space baby to be conceived as well as born in orbit. On a baby being born in orbit, she says we should take care about the person and not patriotic populism as the cornerstone. But you know that's what it's going to devolve to, right? Come on, the national pride? This child is a citizen of the universe. Or at least that seems to be how we approach uh, most births. Well, you were born here. No, you're considered a citizen here. Sure would make it tough getting a passport, right? <laughs> yeah, what's your home address? Uh, it is, uh, you know, a thousand miles above you. <laughs> okay, that's good. Most important, the scientist says, is not the fact for the baby to be born, but for the child to be born healthy. And she says, in this sense, we are beyond any doubt competitive because we hold the leadership in many studies. And this leading scientist said it's too early to set a goal, but it can be set as an aim. And she admitted from a scientific point of view, the birth of any mammal in space is an aim that can be achieved. Now, from a moral and ethical standpoint, she says this is an experiment, an experiment with human embryos. Actually, I'm kind of wondering, why, why aren't the Chinese leading out on this? They seem to have a few less reservations about this. 
Dr. Ogneva admitted that Russian spacemen on the International Space Station have refused to cooperate. They've refused to give sperm samples. And she says, we cannot run such a routine procedure as cosmonauts giving sperm. We are constantly running into moral, psychological, and ethical obstacles. There are no volunteers among cosmonauts. Requests to give samples are met with smiles and disapproval. I don't know. I know space has has led to some very interesting research. Uh, I've seen the pictures, and I believe they are authentic, of uh, one of the astronauts somewhere uh, getting high in space. Smoking some dank nugs up there in zero G. There's been speculation about, well, you know, the uh, the uh, I don't know if it was the Americans or if it was if it was the Russians who sent a couple up there for the purpose of, you know, having sex in space. Why does it sound like it's a bunch of teenagers running the uh, space program? It would be very fascinating to see a child born in space, but I'm having a tough time reconciling the, the necessity for why it has to be done like this. Other than to say we were first, we have bragging rights. So I don't know, maybe it's something to keep an eye on, but of all the things to be competitive over, I think I might try to choose something else. See what else have we got on tap today? Covered the hot dog issue. Um, Here's a good one for you. Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. America, still the land of hope, even though our kids haven't been born in space yet. And he starts with a quote from John Dos Passos. In times of change and danger, when there is a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning, a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifetime across the scary present and get us past that idiot delusion of the exceptional. Now that blocks good thinking. That is why in times like ours, when old institutions are caving in and being replaced by new institutions, not necessarily in accord with most men's preconceived notions, political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards. This is from Land of Hope. Jeff Minnick says some American politicians and organizations are now pushing an agenda they call democratic socialism. And he says many of them regard the Constitution as an antiquated and unfit thing for the modern age. They call for limits on free speech and an end of the Electoral College. Some consider America itself a deeply flawed nation, a swamp of bigotry and prejudice with few redeeming virtues. These bitter critiques and raucous demands for a change raise a question. He asks, if the United States is such a bastion of oppression and misery, then why are so many immigrants, legal and illegal, trying to come here? If democratic socialism is the way to go, then why aren't immigrants storming the borders of North Korea, Cuba, or Venezuela? Well, University of Oklahoma professor Wilfred M. McClay has the answer. In his excellent narrative history, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story, McClay offers readers an antidote to that phrase from the Dos Passos passage above, namely the idiot delusion of the exceptional now. McClay gives a well-written, balanced, and nuanced account of American history. Biographical sketches give us snapshots of Americans from Henry Ford to Harry Truman. 
Discussions of controversial events are calm and even-handed, and McClay's warnings against condescending to the past or condemning it outright are a much-needed admonition in our age of judgmental finger-wagging, virtue-signaling, and iconoclasm. To understand what sets Land of Hope apart from so many other histories written in the last 50 years, Jeff Minnick says, let's look at the book's last chapter, The World Since the Cold War. Near the end of this chapter, McClay addresses the national debt crisis, pointing out that in 40 years, the debt has climbed from a trillion dollars to 21 trillion, and that our current debt is now larger than the nation's economy. Individual American citizens, McClay adds, have also become spendthrifts and borrowers, with total household debt in 2017 reaching an all-time high of $13 trillion. McClay then writes, to recover our capacity for self-rule, we will need, among other things, to recover the wisdom of our predecessors regarding the corrupting effects of pervasive debt, both public and personal, and the importance of cultivating virtue, both civic and individual, as an essential precondition for the self-governing life. And Jeff Minnick says, look at that sentence. Here we find words that govern McKay's, McClay's approach to history have governed Americans in the past and should govern the American people today. Words like self-rule, the wisdom of our predecessors, the importance of cultivating virtue, both civic and individual, and the self-governing life. In his epilogue, The Shape of American Patriotism, McClay accurately writes that his book never loses sight of what there is to celebrate and cherish in the American achievement. This splendid closing essay examines the tensions between the American creed and American culture. Between its universalizing ideals and its particularizing sentiments, with their emphasis upon memory, history, tradition, culture, and the land, he goes on to say that the land of hope is not an uncritical celebration of American achievements, but adds, love is the foundation of the wisest criticism, and criticism is the essential partner of an honest and enduring love. In other words, our national conversation must include the good, the bad, and the ugly. But by the same token, the great story, the thread that we share, should not be lost in a blizzard of details or a hailstorm of rebukes. Minnick concludes by saying McClay is a scholar who clearly loves his country. Bringing Land of Hope into our homes, public libraries, and classrooms would not only take us one step closer to the self-governing life but might spark in our hearts the desire to love and learn about the great American story. And so I'll leave you with this question. What are you doing to learn about the great American story? Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.